and welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 60, where we go back, back to, to the, the past, past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com and pick us up on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and through the jellyfish walls of your incubation chamber. This one we're reading today is suggested by Jeffrey Brown. He's on Twitter at T-S-U-J-I-E-I-G-O. Sugio? Maybe. All right. Uh, (laughs) He draws a comic called Valkyrie Quartet. You can see that at society6.com slash suijigo6. And that would be spelled the same way as his Twitter account. What comic are we reading today, Chris? We are reading the uh, four parts of a tr- of a series called Trigger Girl Six that uh, appeared in Creator Own Heroes numbers one through four uh, during June through September 2012. It's published by Image Comics, written by Jimmy Palmiotti and Justin Gray, with art by Phil Noto. Uh, cover price for the whole enchilada was three ninety nine each. Yeah, we uh, doing this a little bit strangely because these were all collected into one comic a year later. But mm-hmm. uh, I was able to only get the creator-owned com- heroes uh, issues, and I found them more interesting also to see them. And we'll, we'll talk about those sure. a little bit when we get to them. But first, we'll talk a little bit about the creators, uh, Jimmy Palmiotti. This is the uh, most known and probably most visible creator of the guys we're talking about. He was born August 14th, 1961. He attended the High School of Art and Design in New York City. Started at Marvel Comics in 1991, inking titles such as The Punisher, Ghost Rider, The Nam, and Marvel 2099 line. In uh, 1994, he and his friend Joe Quesada formed a publishing company, Event Comics. They co-created several characters and titles. One of them was Ash, a firefighter with superpowers in 1994. Uh, 22 Brides was about a group of girls that run the New York underworld in 1995. And uh, one that still gets play, Painkiller Jane, a female cop with healing powers. That came out in 1996. She makes her first appearance, though, in 22 Brides number one. And uh, another title was Kid Death and Fluffy, about a boy and his pet robot dog. And that was 1997. And then in 1998, Event Comics was contracted to do uh, several books for Marvel Comics. This was the Marvel Knights line. Uh, Marvel, who had uh, recently filed Chapter 11 bankruptcy, asked Quesada to work for Marvel in a more exclusive capacity and contracted him and Event Comic Partners to uh, produce a line of the Marvel books that, like we said, are Marvel Knights. And these were sort of experimental takes on some of uh, what were then Marvel's B-list characters, including Daredevil, The Punisher, The Inhumans, and Black Panther. Uh, for Marvel Knights, Jimmy uh, inked the Casada penciled run on Daredevil. Uh, of particular note, this is the uh, Guardian Devil arc that opened the second volume, penned by Kevin Smith. Uh, is Daredevil Volume Two, numbers one through eight, November 1998 to June 1999. Uh, Jimmy was the anchor during Doug Monkey's run on X. Now, this was a Dark Horse comic. As uh, X number eight, March 1993. Uh, also, X1 through 25, February 1994 through April 1996. Uh, Palmiati inked Steve Dillon on Punisher, which was written by Garth Ennis. This was April 2000 through uh, March 2001. Then in uh, 2002, Jimmy, <laughs> Amanda Connor, and Garth Ennis produced the prestige format one-shot, 
the pro for Image <laughs> Comics. Let me tell you, I've I've read a lot of a lot of books that made me feel grimy, but yeah. this one might take the cake. This one is is famous for uh, how wrong it is in so many ways. And no, we will not be doing this issue on the Cosmic no. Treadmill ever. <laughs> uh, you know, maybe if we are if there's ever a Cosmic Treadmill after dark, after dark, you cannot. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, Jimmy inked Paul Galassi Gulasi on Shang Chi, Master of Kung Fu. That was November 2002 to April 2003. Catwoman, 2004 to 2005. And Punisher in 2006. Palmiotti also inked Brad Walker's pencils on the DC Comics miniseries Secret Six, Six Degrees of Devastation in 2006. As a writer, Palmiotti is known for Deadpool, Daughters of the Dragon, The Punisher, Heroes for Hire, and Shana the She-Devil for Marvel Comics. Hawkman, Superboy, and the Monolith for DC Comics, and 21 Down, The Resistance, and The Twilight Experiment for their Wildstorm imprint. And he writes often in tandem with fellow writer Justin Gray, as he did for Trigger Girl 6. Palmiotti also co-scripted with Garth Ennis a Ghost Rider video game that ties in with the movie, uh, starring Nicolas Cage, a great uh, movie that no one should watch. In July 2010, (laughs) he started recording Listen to Jimmy, a podcast with monster Mike Campbell of the Canadian comic book and pop culture radio show, Where Monsters Dwell. He hasn't done this for a while, but these episodes are available from the Where Monsters Dwell feed. You can still go listen to them. Palmiotti and Gray were part of the writing team for DC's Countdown, and they wrote Jonah Hex, which uh, sort of later would turn into All-Star Western during the New 52, and GI Combat for DC Comics. In June 2013, Palmiotti was the keynote speaker for the 2013 Inkwell Awards Award Ceremony at Heroes Con in Charlotte, North Carolina. In 2013, DC Comics tapped Amanda Connor and Jimmy Palmiotti to relaunch the Harley Quinn series. The series is, a cons- is consistently a top seller for DC, uh, creating a large fan base and several spin-off miniseries. Several spin-off miniseries. Uh, now, the first issue of the that. Rebirth line. <laughs> now, the first issue of the Rebirth line in August 2016 sold nearly 400,000 copies, wow. which made it the highest seller that month. In uh, 2016, uh, Palmiotti joined Ar- actress. Christana Loken and Jonathan Bates informing Trio Entertainment. I've never heard of them either, don't worry. Me either, no. Okay, (laughs) I thought maybe I was just in the comic (laughs) bubble there. Uh, This is a a company that turns out intellectual properties for film as well as uh, television production. In uh, 2016, his character Monolith was optioned by Lionsgate for development. Like we said, that that came out through DC, but it was creator-owned, and I think it came out, I think it was collected either through Image or maybe IDW uh, sometime uh, in the Sometime in the interim, yeah. Uh, in uh, 2016, his character Painkiller Jane was optioned for movie development by uh, Jessica Chastain and her production studio Freckle Films. Haven't heard of either of those either. Nope, but, but there it is. <laughs> and actually, I forgot in, that there was actually an, an, an uh, epic miniseries of Painkiller Jane in like 2014. Like, they, they still, in the, you know, I don't think we could ever do a full bibliography no. for his amount, amount of work that these guys churn out. Very prolific, yeah. yeah. Um, now, in 2017, the pro was optioned for <laughs> by Paramount Pictures. So, uh, we guess uh, Trio Entertainment, uh, the plan works. Yeah, it seems uh, like it. <laughs> now, Jimmy is married to longtime collaborator and illustrator Amanda Connor, and they live together in Florida. Yes. So let's go on to Justin Gray. Now, there was a lot less information that I could find about Justin Gray, including no birth date. So really, this boils down to a pretty hefty bibliography, folks. So strap in and hear about all the works to which Justin Gray has 
contributed to or written himself. Uh, it's a long list. Anyway, he's uh, often collaborated, like we said, on uh, with writer Jimmy Palmiotti on various series. I haven't distinguished necessarily every time that he has. Hmm. It's very often. Okay, let's yes. just say like four to five times probably there was Jimmy <laughs> Palmiotti was involved. Uh, so let's go through this now. Gen 13, Volume 3, Number 0, 21 Down, and the Resistance Stories. That was with Jimmy Palmiotti, Jesus Saiz, and Juan Santa Cruz. That was July 2002 for Wildstorm. 21 Down, number 1 through 12, that was September 2002 to September 2003 for Wildstorm. The Resistance, that was a limited series, went from 2002, September 2002 to April 2003 for Wildstorm. Mr. Keen, Tracer of Lost Persons, a three-issue limited series with Lee Ferguson, 2003 for Moonstone Books. We got The Punisher, Red Xmas. It's a one-shot with Jimmy Palmiotti and Mark Texiera. That was December 2004 from Marvel. Uh, we have The Monolith, issues 1 through 12. This is February 2004 to January 2005 from D.C., again with uh, with Jimmy. Uh, the Twilight Experiment, limited series uh, from February 20, 2005 to July 2005 through Wildstorm. Also, Jonah Hex, Volume 2, issue 1 to 70. Mm. Uh, this is uh, November of 2005, all the way to the end of the real D.C., and all August 2011 from right. uh, DC Comics. And, and it would switch over. We'll get to that, though. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Cloudburst, a graphic novel. He wrote that with Jimmy Palmiotti, created also with Elisu Govia and Christopher Shai. That was June 2004 for Image Comics. Hawkman, Volume 4, number 28 through 49. That was May 2004 to February 2006. Cover dates for DC Comics. Red Sonia, One More Day. That was a one-shot with Jimmy Palmiotti and Liam Sharp. November 2005, Dynamite Entertainment. Batman, Legends of the Dark Knight, Volume 1, Numbers 204 to 206, April 2006 to May 2006, cover dates, DC Comics. I often forget that Legends of the Dark Knight had such a long run. It really did. Into the 200s. And I don't think it ever, I don't think they carried it, but it was a digital only at the beginning of the new 52, but they they rebooted it along with everything else. Of course. (laughs) We have uh, The Daughters of the Dragon. This is a six-issue limited series with Jimmy Palmiotti and Carrie Evans. This is January through June 2006 from Marvel. Uh, The Punisher, Bloody Valentine. This is a one-shot. Probably for Valentine's Day uh, With uh, Jimmy Palmiotti and Paul Gulasi This was February 2006 from Marvel We also have The Battle for Bludhaven This was a six issue limited series That's either spun out Or led into Infinite Crisis Right. Uh, this was with Jimmy Palmiotti And Dan Jurgens, April through July 2006 DC Comics So yeah that was spun out of uh, yeah, Infinite Crisis uh, One of the many little uh, things that kind of <laughs> came out of that uh, Marvel Adventures, Fantastic Four, that was June 2006 to September 2006, Marvel Comics. Brave New World, one shot, this was Uncle Sam and the Freedom Fighters with Jimmy Palmiotti and Daniel Acuna, June 2006 for DC Comics. He wrote Marvel Westerns, Kid Cult and the Arizona Girl, one shot. Last Stage to Oblivion was the story with Jimmy Palmiotti and Frederica Manfredi. That was July 2006, cover date for Marvel Comics. To tie in with the, uh, the with the movie, we have Superman Returns prequel number one. Story was called Krypton to Earth. This was with Jimmy Palmiotti, Brian Singer, Michael Doherty, Dan Harris, and Ariel Olivetti. This was June 2006 from DC. We've got Claws, a three-issue limited series with Jimmy Palmiotti and Joseph Linsner. This was August through October 2006 from Marvel. Uh, Supergirl, Volume 5, Number 12, Rock On, with uh, Jimmy Palmiani and Amanda Connor. This was uh, November 2006 from D.C. 
Uh, he wrote the Friday the 13th six-issue limited series with Jimmy Palmiotti and Adam Archer, December 2006 to May 2007, cover dates, uh, Wildstorm. Uncle Sam and the Freedom Fighters, Volume 1, Number 1 through 8, Limited Series, July 2006 to February 2007 for DC Comics. Heroes for Hire, Volume 2, uh, he wrote from August 2006 to February 2007 for Marvel Comics. And JLA Classified, Number 42 to 46, that was September through November 2007 for DC Comics. Midnighter, number nine, The Hercules Virus, with Jimmy Palmiotti and Brian Stelfreeze. This is July 2007 from Wildstorm. We have The Hills Have Eyes, The Beginning. This is a graphic novel with Jimmy Palmiotti and John Higgins. This is July 2007 from Fox Atomic Comics. Uh, Superman Confidentials, issues 6 and 7, September and October 2007 from D.C. Shanna the the She-Devil, Survival (laughs) of the Fittest. This was a limited series that ran from August 2007 through November 2007 from Marvel. And here we come to some great comics, Countdown to Final Crisis. He wrote various issues within that series or contributed to them. Uh, March 2007 to January 2008, DC Comics. He wrote the good parts, though, Chris, so that's fine. Absolutely. Uh, Uncle Sam and the Freedom Fighters, Volume 2. We already talked about that one. Uh, Countdown to Adventure, Number 1 through 8, August 2007 to March 2008. That was DC Comics. And Terra 1 through 4. That was with Jimmy Palmiotti and I think Amanda Connor. I that, think so. Definitely Jimmy uh, Palmiotti. Well, actually, that, that never even came out. That never even happened, so we, we can just probably skip uh, that You're one. saying because it got wiped away in the, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> November 2008 to December 2008, DC Comics. We got Superman, Supergirl, Maelstrom. This was a limited series that ran from November 2008 through January 2009 from DC. Uh, Prototype, a six-issue limited series with Jimmy Palmiotti, Derek Robertson, and Matt Jacobs. This was April through September 2009 from Wildstorm. Did this have anything to do with the uh, the video game? I'm not sure. Uh, It would have been right around that time, though, right? Yeah. Prototype game where he could jump around like Spider-Man. That was his thing. Yeah, yeah. It was open world and all that good stuff. We have... Power Girl, Volume 2, Issues 1 through 12. This is May 2009 through May, uh, well, it couldn't be May 2012. No, could uh, not be. Let's say 2010 must be, I right? I think so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was from, uh, from DC. And then we have The Last Resort, which was a five-issue limited series with Jimmy Palmiotti and Giancarlo Caracuzzo. This was uh, July through December 2009 from IDW. I think that might have been a video game tie-in also, maybe. Maybe. Uh, maybe not. Well, he, they've obviously done quite a few of them. Sure. And we'll keep going. Random Acts of Violence. It was a graphic novel with Jimmy Palmiotti and Giancarlo Caracuzzo in 2010 for Image Comics. Jonah Hex, No Way Back. This is a great standalone graphic novel with Jimmy Palmiotti and Tony DiZuniga in June 2010, DC Comics. Time Bomb, three-issue limited series with Jimmy Palmiotti and Paul Gulasi, July-December 2010, Radical Comics. We also have Trailblazer, which was a graphic novel with Jimmy Palmiani and Jim Daly. It was uh, June 2011 from Image Comics. Freedom Fighters, we're back with them from D.C. here from September 2010 to May 2011. Uh, Clause 2, which uh, presumably is a sequel to Clause. <laughs> that was another three-issue limited series with Jimmy Palmiani and Joseph Linsner. This was July through September 2011 from Marvel. And then uh, we move into the New 52. We have All-Star Western, Volume 3, Issues 1 through 34. This was September 2011 to August 2014 from DC. And if you connect this with 
the Jonah Hex run. That's a heck of a run. That's 104 issues straight. Yep. Uh, although you would be pressed to do that. While Jonah Hex was the main character and eventually the only character in All-Star Western, they, they did try to mix it up in their early issues. So. Sure. Uh, they also wrote, or he also wrote with other people, The Ray, Volume 3, Number 1 through 4, Limited Series, December 2011 to March 2012 covers, DC Comics. G.I. Combat in a Volume 3, Numbers 0 through 7 with Jimmy Palmiotti. May 2012 to December 2012, DC Comics. Phantom Lady with Jimmy Palmiotti and Cat Staggs, a limited series from August 2012 to November 2012 in uh, for DC Comics. And Dark Horse Presents, Volume 2, Numbers 16 through 19, The Deep Sea with Jimmy Palmiotti and Tony Aiken, September 2012 to December 2012, Dark Horse Comics. We have Amy Kami Girls, uh, one th- uh, I'm sorry, October 2012 to October 2013 from DC. We have The Human Bomb, issues one through four with Jimmy Palmiotti and Jerry Ordway. There's a limited series that ran from December 2012 to March 2013 from DC. Sex and Violence, Volume 1, a graphic novel with Jimmy Palmiotti, Jimmy Broxton, and Juan Santa Cruz. This was this came out through Paper Films in March 2013. Uh, we also have Batwing, issues 19 through 34. This is April, uh, ooh, not 19, April 2013 through September 2014 from DC. Retrovirus, that was a graphic novel with Jimmy Palmiotti and Norberto Fernandez, November 2014 for Image Comics. Uh, Batman The Dark Knight, Volume 2, number 23.2. This is during Villains Month. Mr. Mm. Freeze with Jimmy Palmiotti and Jason Masters, September 2013 for DC Comics. Weapon of God, graphic novel with Jimmy Palmiotti and Giancarlo Caracuzzo. Or Caracuzzo in September 2013 for Paper Films. Uh, a graphic novel called Forager with uh, Jimmy Palmiotti and Stephen Cummings. This was November 2013 for Paper Films and Jet City Comics. A graphic novel called Wool. Uh, this is with Jimmy Palmiotti and Jimmy Broxton. Uh, 2014 Jet City Comics. A graphic novel called Denver with uh, Jimmy Palmiotti and Pierre Brito. Uh, this was uh, July 2014 from Paper Films. Uh, Star Spangled War Stories featuring G.I. Zombie. That's a mouthful of a title. Uh, <laughs> issues 1 through 8 with Jimmy Palmiotti and Scott Hampton. This was July 2014 through March 2015. Uh, Dark Horse presents Volume 3, Number 1 through 6, Story Wrestling with Demons with Jimmy Palmiotti and Andy Kuhn. Uh, August 2014 to January 2015 covers Dark Horse Comics. Uh, Lone Ranger Vindicated, a four issue limited series with Ray Villegas, or Villegas probably, November 2014 yeah. to February 2015, uh, Dynamite Entertainment. Convergence, yeah, that's right. Mm. Convergence, Action Comics. This is that two-issue limited series with Claude St. Aubin in April or May 2015 when they made the move to Burbank for DC Comics. Yeah, Sex and Violence, Volume 2, a graphic novel with Jimmy Palmiotti, Rafa Garris, Romina Morinelli, and Vanessa R. Del Rey. This was January 2015 from Paper Films. Another Convergence, this time it's Catwoman, another <laughs> two-issue limited series along with Ron Randall, uh, April-May 2015, DC Comics. Abaddon, a graphic novel with Jimmy Palmiotti and Fabri... Fabrizio Florent- Fiorentino. Fabrizio sure. Fiorentino. There we go. Uh, t- March 2015, Paper Films and Adaptive Comics. And then we have the uh, six-issue miniseries, Harley Quinn and Power Girl. This was with Jimmy Palmiani and, Amer- and Amanda Connor. This is June 2015 through November 2015 from DC Comics. So, you know, if you go through this... Busy like, dude. Yeah, well, you see a guy, there's not a lot of downtime in between, yeah. w- in between work. He pretty much has stayed working since 2002 nonstop, and 
it's interesting going through it and even reading through it you see the progression of his career you know it's like more graphic novels more independent sure. work on this end but anyway uh we still gotta talk about phil noto for whom we had a similar problem we've got a little mm -hmm. bit of information about him but really gonna boil down to his bibliography which is not as long because it takes a lot longer to draw things <laughs> than it takes to write them but phil attended the ringling school of art and design for three years before gaining an internship at disney his internship turned into a 10-year career there as a cleanup artist for animated work including the lion king pocahontas the hunchback of notre dame mulan tarzan lilo and stitch and brother bear after selling some of his fan art he began to get jobs as an artist for marvel and dc as well as for Image and Dark Horse Comics. One painting in particular was purchased by fellow comic book artist Tim Townsend, and it sparked a big friendship between the two. Now, let's jump into the work Mr. Noto has done. Uh, started out with Grendel, Red, Black, Red, Red, White, and Black, number three, Devilish Escapades with Matt Wagner and Maverick, uh, 2002 for Dark Horse Comics. Drew Batgirl number 27 with Kelly Puckett in 2002 for DC Comics. Secret Files and Origins number one. Raising Cain was the story with Scott Peterson, 2002 for DC Comics. A Beautiful Killer, issues one through three with Jimmy Palmiotti for Black Bull Entertainment, which was a Wizard, Wizard Magazine's attempt at uh, oh. getting into publishing comics. That ran from 2002 to 2003. Uh, Danger Girl with J. Scott Campbell and Andy Hartnell from uh, Cliffhanger Comics, which was one of the imprints within an imprint for a Wildstorm. Nice. Uh, from uh, 2003 to 2004. We have The Many Worlds of Tesla Strong. This was with Alan Moore, Peter K. Hogan, and various other artists. This is a one-shot from uh, America's Best Comics, the mm -hmm. ABC line in twenty in two thousand three. Another imprint within an imprint. <laughs> <laughs> within an imprint. Yep. Uh, <laughs> this is the, next. We have the uh, the New West issues one and two with Jimmy Palmiotti, another Black Bull book in two thousand five. Uh, Gun Candy number two, stories called Mardi Gras Act Four, Bourbon and Saint Peter. This came out with a with a Chuck Dixon script in two thousand six from Image Comics. Did GI Joe Scarlet declassified with Mike O'Sullivan, Devil's Due Comics? published that it was a one shot in 2006 jonah hex number 10 numbers 16 through 17 19 through 20 and 22 these were written by jimmy palmiotti and justin gray and they came out from 2006 2007 from dc comics mystic arcana sister grim story called to try to try in vain with cb sibolsky this is a one shot 2007 from marvel comics and the infinite horizon number one through six with jerry dugan this is 2007 to 2011 image comics I'm guessing the, what we're going to talk about now is a TV tie-in called Chuck. I think written, so. That's right. <laughs> written, written by Peter Johnson in Wildstorm in 2008. Uh, X-Men Origins Iceman with Roberto Aguirre Sacasa. This is a one-shot in 2009 from Marvel. Uh, that Superman, Supergirl, Maelstrom, one through five limited series with Jim Lee Palmiotti and Justin Gray came out again in 20, uh, 2009. Uh, we have Halo Wars Genesis with Eric Nyland. This is a graphic novel uh, based on, you know, the video game. Came I would out through Microsoft. think so. <laughs> yes, it uh, came out through Microsoft Game Studios in 2009. Uh, he drew Pilot Season Seven Days from Hell with Brian Edward Hill and Robert Levine. Or Levine. Well, top, one shot from Top Cow in 2010. Avengers, the origin number one through five with Joe Casey, 2010 from Marvel Comics. Wolverine and Jubilee 1 through 4 with Catherine Immonen, 2010, Marvel Comics. Batman Doc Savage special Bronze Knight was the story with Brian Azzarello, one shot, 2010 from DC Comics. 
Angel and Faith number five. Stories called Perf- Imperfect Harmony, written by Christos Gage, 2011 Dark Horse Comics. Buffy the Vampire Slayer season nine number six from Dark Horse in 2011. House of Mystery number 28. Stories called Peace, written by Matthew Sturgis uh, from Vertigo Comics in 2010. Uh, X23 issues 13 through 16 and 20 and 21, written by Marjorie Liu. Uh, this came out between 2011 and 2012 from Marvel. Also, Uncanny X-Force issues 24, 26, 27, and 31 through 35, written by Rick Remender from uh, 2012 to 2013 from Marvel. Drew Spigal thrills, frills, and espionage with James Asmus. One shot in 2012 from Marvel Comics. Bart Simpson's Treehouse of Horror, number 18, the story Marge Mary's Baby with Jerry Dugan for Bongo Comics in 2012. He drew Ghost with Kelly Sue DeConnick, 2003, for Dark Horse. Before Watchmen, Minutemen number one through six, he did The Colors, uh, drawn by Darwin Cook and written by Darwin Cook, if I recall, 2012 I think so. 2013, DC Comics, yeah. And we go to Marvel Now, the first time around. Uh, Thunderbolts (laughs) issues 7 through 11 with Daniel Way scripts, 2013 Marvel Comics. Uh, Black Widow, written by Nathan Edmondson, 2014-2015 Marvel Comics. Then we hop into the Star Wars books here. Star Wars Chewbacca, issues 1 through 5, written by Jerry Dugan, uh, miniseries, 2015 Marvel Comics. And Star Wars Poe Dameron, with uh, Charles Soule writing. Uh, It's an ongoing series from 2016 through now. Still coming Uh, up. Yes, uh, from uh, Marvel Comics. Yeah, he does a lot of covers, too. You see him. Sure. He, he is not starving. And also, another list, you can tell these are not guys that have let themselves languish very long in between no, projects. That's No grass growing under their feet. That's the way it has to be, though, uh, erstwhile comics mm-hmm. creators. Just think about that. Anyway, uh, so let's talk about the magazine that this came from. It was, it was kind of a surprise to me, Chris, because... Uh, you know, we talked about this before the show that would, at, a, at a glance, it looks like an industry magazine, right? Like Certainly. comic book collectors monthly or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, or I thought it was maybe like a, you know, how to draw, how to get in the industry. And it is kind of like that. Uh, but it's more than that because it has, you know, original comics in it. So it was a 40 page monthly magazine from Image Comics, started by Jimmy Palmiotti and Steve Niles in June 2012. The magazine featured 22 pages of comics split into two ongoing strips spanning over two through four issues. So you'd get kind of a chapter per uh, comic, depending how long, how many chapters they gave you. The comics that were featured in the eight issue run of Creator Own Comics were American Muscle by Steve Niles and Kevin. Kevin Mellon, Trigger Girl 6, which is the one we'll be specifically talking about today by Jimmy Palmiotti, Justin Gray, and Phil Noto. Kill Switch by Justin Gray and Jimmy Palmiotti. We got Black Sparrow by Steve Niles, Jay Russell, and Andrew Ritchie. We got Meatbag by Steve Niles and Scott Morrison. And, and Steve Niles is the uh, 30 Days a Night guy, right? Yes, that's what it is. Okay. Yeah. Uh, now, plus there were 18 pages of magazine format material. We've got interviews with the artists of creator-owned heroes and other creators of the industry, uh, articles about the creative process behind the stories in creator-owned heroes, and you know, basically just making comics in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have clips of artwork and photos from conventions and events. Uh, it really feels like more of a throwback to the classic comics fanzine, and uh, believe you me, we're going to get back to that later. We're going to get back to that later on, yeah. But first, we're actually going to dive... Right into Trigger Girl 6, starting with the first chapter in Creator Own Heroes number 1. Came out June 2012. Our story begins with a white-haired woman in a fetal position inside of a jellyfish or something. Uh, This is Trigger Girl 6, obviously. 
and there are boobs. Hey, there's also, we like that. Uh, you can also see angelfish swimming around her. Mm-hmm. And there's a voiceover of uh, two characters shown in captions. Yeah, one of them's named Linda, and it says, Vital signs are all good. Heart rate is perfect. Subject 6 has entered her final incubation stage. Program download finalized. Brain function normal. David, how does it look on your end? To which David says, Looks fine. We have a schedule to keep, so let's move forward, please. Linda, give her another push. There seems to be nothing happening. And Trigger Girl 6 opens her eyes. Vitals on there. Perfect. Everything's reading normal across the board. Trigger Girl 6 then struggles against her jellyfish kind of prison. David goes, good. Everyone stand down. The subject is to have no interaction. Initiate stage two. So now Trigger Girl 6 emerges from a pool into a large white room. She walks over to a table that's the only object in the room to walk to, and there's clothing on it. It's a skin-tight leather uniform and some white boots. She puts these on while a dryer kind of heats her from below, and then in another room that requires her retinal scan, she has a bunch of weapons of pretty much every type, and uh, (laughs) she takes some. She sure does, and then uh, Trigger Girl 6 hops into an egg, then the room turns red. Yeah, Trigger Girl 6 says, Go! I wonder if she's a uh, nanu nanu back to walk. Yeah, she's got the right uh, uh, ship for it. <laughs> the egg pops out of a remote observatory and careens through the sky. Uh, invisible to the naked eye, Trigger Girl 6 slips below a military airplane and latches onto the underside of it. Inside that plane are the senator and a pilot. Uh, the senator is needling the pilot to speak his political mind freely. And he's also smoking a big honking cigar. I believe that's required to be very senatorial. You have to have the biggest, <laughs> smelliest cigar around. It is. The pilot, uh, the pilot goes, hold on, picking up a disturbance on the lower fuselage. Unidentifiable. Senator says, y'all mean like a UFO? Switching to external cameras. What? It looks like a girl. The computer can't get a lock on her face. And Trigger Girl 6 face shows up all blurred out on the screen. We can see it. Captain uh, mm. Senator says, Captain, you've been living under a rock. That suit she's wearing, it's a Trigger Girl. You get on the horn and call in for some help right the, now. We have two combat jets ready. Combat ready jets ghosting us at the moment. I'll get them to move in closer. So then these two jets, they close in on the plane from behind. That's where we see it. And they observe that Trigger Girl 6 is indeed hanging off the bottom of this plane. Mm-hmm. The President of the United States breaks into the communication. He says, the President of the United States. We have an extremely dangerous code red situation on our hands here. This person should be eliminated without prejudice at any cost. You have your orders. Excuse me, Mr. President. But that situation is on the belly of my plane. Just how in hell do you plan on having these boys take care of this? To which Killer 2 breaks in and goes, This is Killer 2. Orders received, Mr. President. Killer 1, clear the road. And then a jet fires two missiles at the senator's plane, blowing it up. But to Girl 6 lassos the other jet and gets pulled away unharmed. She lands on Killer 2's jet. Yeah, Killer 1 says, Killer 2, get the hell out of there. She's doing something. I can't make it out. I'm trying. Killer 2 fumbles with his eject button, but no dice. Trigger Girl 6 says, not to the target. She did something to the hatch. I can't get the eject mechanism to function. Trigger Girl 6 just jumps off the jet and soars away with some wings kind of 
unfold from her suit and turn it into a flying squirrel kind of thing. <laughs> yes. uh, Killer One says, Sorry, buddy. Orders are orders. Killer One launches a missile that kills, uh, that explodes Killer Two's plane. And, uh, you know, we presume Killer I Two as well. To, I, don't, I didn't see a parachute yet. <laughs> and then we get a pinup picture of Trigger Girl 6. Hey, isn't that nice? So, that was it for that chapter. But also in this very issue, there is American Muscle Part 1 by Steve Niles and Kevin Mellon. There's an interview with Neil Gaiman. There's editorials by Jimmy Palmiotti, Justin Gray, Steve Bunch, and Steve Niles. Profiles of cosplayers Julie and Alex Abin, Abin maybe, twin sisters, hmm. and Julie actually models the Trigger Girl 6 costume. There's some random photos from comic conventions, and profile of comic creator Seth Kushner. Now we're going to jump ahead to Trigger Girl 6 and creator-owned heroes number 2, July 2012. We hop right into the Oval Office, and the president is being briefed. Yeah, one of the aides says... We lost two of our planes, and the third had to head back to refuel. Half location. Uh, another aide named Anna says, Over the city, we have some choppers in the air, and military is on alert on the ground. Now, Trigger Girl 6 soars toward a steel and glass skyscraper. Then she smashes into one of the windows, which interrupts an office, office worker's conversation with his wife. Uh, Trigger Girl 6 keeps careening and smashing through stuff, eventually landing on the runway to a fashion show. She shakes some broken glass out of her hair. Yeah, blue-haired lady turns to her and says, That outfit is to die for. And a fellow with the Bride of Frankenstein hair goes, but That's a Trigger Girl! And then a guy with a blue stripe on his head and wearing green sunglasses says, Run for your lives! And Trigger Girl 6 has landed downtown at the Robertson Convention Center and has been picked up on WCDC Channel 17 News. The military communicates with each other, and we can read it in captions. Yeah, that's very helpful for us. One of the soldiers says, <laughs> She's been spotted off of 14th Street, heading to Penn. We have three tanks on the ground in the District Columbia building. We have cleared as many civilians as we could from the area and are going in. Sure enough, three tanks are rolling down a street. Yeah, tank one, we can hear him say, Sir, we have it in our sights. Tank two goes, Fire on rotor. The tank peels off four shells, blowing up a car. Trigger Girl 6 just runs headlong at the tank and jumps up on top of it, plants a bomb with a two-second fuse, and you can kind of figure out what happens after that. Uh, mm -hmm. The president's in the Oval Office watching all of this on a holographic screen. We see Trigger Girl 6's face is blurred out here as well. president goes, you've got to be kidding me. Give me the last clear image of her. Where is she now? Exact location, please. And it says, they have lost her location and they aren't getting a heat signal anywhere. She says nothing has been within the perimeter of the White House. Besides the scanners and laser coverage, they have three dozen attack dogs circling the grounds. We have never had one of these trigger girls this close, Anna. I'm going underground. Alert my staff to evacuate this level. Now, baby. Outside the White House, the dogs are barking and running in a pack, and Trigger Girl is six is like among them, running with them. It's very <laughs> yes. kind of cool. <laughs> the president, can, uh, he can hear the dogs outside, and we know that because he goes, I can hear the dogs outside. How in hell did she get in here so quick? Mr. President, please, we have to get out of here now. 
Trigger Girl 6 leaps up and latches onto the window of the Oval Office. She pukes some kind of acid that uh, eats through the glass. Uh, then the elite SWAT squad, or whoever they are, Something. busts into the place. <laughs> uh, this is like the red goggled death squad from some futuristic uh, dystopian uh, video landscape. Game. I was, I was yeah. thinking like so many video games where you see guys with like these crazy, bulky, red eyed gas masks. Yep, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, now, Trigger Girl 6 dispatches all of them with her bare hands and feet. Ultimately, she winds up in the middle of the Oval Office, and the president is on his knees before her, a gun trained at his forehead. She says, President Clarkson? Ma'am, stand down. What do you want from me? Termination. Things get real tense here. So the president, his nose bloodied, gets a good look at Trigger Girl 6. And he reacts, uh, he's kind of shocked. He goes, you, your, your faith, it, it can't be. Mom? And Trigger Girl 6 just faints dead away from that. She mm-hmm. wakes up restrained to a chair wearing only her underwear. Which, I mean, by now we've already seen her boobs, so yeah. it's not a big a deal. It's funny, we, we don't actually see her boobs again, I don't think. We did nope. only for the first uh, panel. Mm-hmm. The president addresses her from three green hollow screens hovering around Trigger Girl 6's head. I demand an explanation on why you and your army of trigger girls have made, what is it now, six attempts on my life? Do you speak English? All languages. Good for you. You don't know how happy that's made me. Now I demand you tell me who sent you and why in hell you look exactly like my deceased mother. And then we get another trigger girl six pinup. Yay. Yeah, and this one's a bit more action-oriented than the uh, the last time. Yeah, around. she's sort of like shifting to the side and peeling off a bunch of bullets. But uh, so that's, mm-hmm. that's nice if you want to collect a lot of pictures of Trigger Girl 6. This is your place to look for. But also in this issue, we have the second part to American Muscle. We have editorials by Jimmy Palmiotti, Steve Bunch, Steve Niles, and Justin Gray again. An interview with Paul Pope, profile of physical trainer Victoria Powell, and profile of letter- letterer Bill Tortellini. Or Tortone, mm-hmm. yeah, Tortellini. Tortellini works fine. Yeah. Fine. <laughs> Next issue, we have Trigger Girl Six in Creator-owned issue, uh, Creator-owned Heroes number three. This is August 2012, cover date, and we pick up precisely from where we left off. Like exactly, Trigger Girl yeah. Six says, "I was sent here to terminate you. There is nothing after. No further objective. That is everything. Well, maybe if I finish this job, the next objective would present itself. Again." That is it. You must know more than that. You weren't born yesterday. Someone had to train you and give you information for your mission. Uh, yet the president's advised that their readings show that Trigger Girl 6 is telling the truth. Their, you know, truth meter is uh, mm-hmm. positive. Two of the president's aides suggest that he keep talking to her to find out more about Trigger Girl 6's origin. And the attending doctor there, Dr. Willow, suggests that they just observe her. Yes, the president goes, Dr. Willow, I, I trust you to do this quickly, please. And one last thing, make sure you find out why she looks like my mother when she was 20 years old. I'm freaking out here. And uh, it's funny because <laughs> Trigger Girl I'm 6. I'm doing President Dusty Rhodes. I, I love uh, it. <laughs> the voice is perfect, but uh, the, the best part here is he, like, she heard him say that. Trigger Girl 6 reacts to that. She oh. says, Mr. President, try to look at the situation logically if possible. Someone sent me here to terminate you. Some Something you are doing is upsetting someone enough to send one of me to try to finish the job. If I look like your mother, maybe the thing you should take from this is why make me look like her. 
This is the me- what is the message that they are sending? I will not be a prisoner. You have some questions you need answered, and now I have some as well. Goodbye. And while talking, Trigger Girl 6 slips out of her restraints, plucks a strand, a strand of hair from her head, and hurls it against a glass wall of her prison, shattering it. Hey! Uh, and so she escapes and runs down a long concrete trench. It's because the pointy end of the hair hit it, though. It's not like an explosive yes, yeah. So It's nothing crazy, people. It's just a very pointy, sharp hair. Uh, the president sends a drone to track her movements, but Trigger Girl 6 shoots it into smithereens. But that's okay, don't worry. They also sprayed her with a tracking mist while she was being held there. That's handy. Now, at the end of this trench, Trigger Girl 6 encounters a group of people partying down. Uh, they're flaming barrels and parked cars about as well. Yeah, Trigger Girl 6 says, Interference. And then she's approached by a slim girl with tousled purple hair. And she goes, Hey, you want to get high? Higher? No, I need to head east. I can make that happen for you. You gotta pay a toll, though. No one gets through here without paying us the toll. Toll? I don't understand. Well, in order to go that way, you have to give me something I want. And then I can allow you to go. An easy transaction. Yup for it? I have no currency. I want you. Want me for what? You are kidding, right? You're beautiful. I want to have you. I have nothing to barter with, but I warn you, there are people following me. Nothing. I I see more than nothing. Just then, some guy in dreadlocks with a Greenpeace t-shirt breaks up the gripping conversation. He goes, Chase, don't you watch the news? There's a friggin' Trigger Girl. So Trigger Girl 6, she sees that he knows something about her and asks if, uh, he asks him if he knows where she comes from. You come from nowhere, and and that's what's so cool about you guys. All of a sudden, you're there making a run for the boss man. You do know there's a reward out for you, a very large amount of money. Nothing personal, but money is hard to come by these days. And everyone crowds around Trigger Girl 6 menacingly, so over a page, Trigger Girl 6 beats <laughs> them all into submission very handily. Mm-hmm. Uh, she takes off down an underground tunnel system kind of lined with these colored pipes, and this is observed by some unattached caption commentary. And curiously, two mice and a striped snake. Back at the White House, it's business as usual. They're hoping Trigger Girl 6 will lead them right to the place she came from, thereby exposing the identities of the president's assassins. The president goes, that's true. I I know we'll we'll both sleep better once they're caught. I'm heading out there right now for the takedown. And he's there with his wife, who says, isn't that risky? Yes, but it makes some good press. Want to come? Can I watch them burn? Burn! We're gonna cook those bastards alive and even for breakfast. Mm. So, future President Dusty Rhodes is accountable. It's well, um, getting kind of dark here, but all right. It does a little bit. Now, Trigger Girl Six comes uh, to a deep pool, uh, into which several pipes are pumping water. Nowhere to go, but down. And so she dives into the water. After some deep swimming, she emerges in a concrete room with a big circle symbol on one of the walls. And Trigger Girl 6 touches the wall. Heat. This is the place. Trigger Girl 6 fires her gun at the wall and knocks a large hole in it. Climbing through the hole, she finds uh, the giant holographic head of some white-haired lady who goes, Welcome home, daughter. Whoa, bum, bum, bum. So Mm -hmm. that's the end of that chapter, but... Elsewhere in this issue, we have American Muscle Part 3, 
Uh, One-page interview with Mark Wade, a showcase and profile of Phil Noto. Editorials by Steve Bunch, Justin Gray, and Steve Niles. That last one, it really is an interview with Niles, but content-wise, it's essentially an editorial about comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, photos of people holding creator-owned heroes, number one, and sometimes all three issues. And a profile of Christopher Irving and his digital magazine. Now we wrap up Trigger Girl 6 in Creator-Owned Heroes number 4. This is September 2012, Covet 8, and we hop right back into the action. Trigger Girl 6 is regarding the holographic white-haired lady's head and says, Are you my mother? Now i got to figure out a voice for her. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You disobeyed your mission and broke a key rule. You have led the target back here and exposed us. Turn around and get as far away from here as possible. They must never find this place. You have a responsibility to protect us. Us? You mean you and me, us, or someone else? Trigger Girl 6 ain't going anywhere until she gets some answers. Yeah, she wants to know why she was tasked with killing the President of the United States. Certainly, and the uh, white-haired holographic lady answers, In the past seven years he has been in office, he has been unmercifully, unmercifully, she stutters too, unmercifully (laughs) destroying the planet. His connection to gluttonous corporations and strip mining operations have been catastrophic. The effects have caused permanent loss of the ecosystem. His decisions are driving us to extinction. He is far from his mother's son. And I am, and am I far from being your daughter because of my failure? Show yourself to me. Let me talk to your face and not this screen. And the white-haired lady's holographic projection turns red. Leave this space and run as far as you can. We will contact you later, I swear it. I am done talking to a projection. And so she raises a gun and fires at the giant hologram head. Meanwhile, the president, the first lady, and a whole lot of military are in a bunch of helicopters converging on Trigger Girl 6. Yeah, one army guy says, We have the Trigger Girl tracked a quarter mile under the old waterworks building off Rock Creek Park. If my shit shut down, since we shut down the desalination plants off of Virginia Beach, what's the plan of action? I mean... Isn't isn't he the one in charge, Mr. President? I think he's like, calling the shot. Right? I would think so. I mean, this is the art. This is like his people. But all right. Yeah, the, the guy looks at him, and be like, "Well, yes." Uh, you, the, you ordered us here. What do we do next? <laughs> now, the president suggests that they make a big show of things. Uh, an army officer says that they that they shouldn't do anything to put this mission in jeopardy. First lady doesn't like that. She says. Son, do as your commander-in-chief requests, and we will try to overlook your insubordination on questioning a direct order. Dear, he's just doing his job and trying to protect us. You have your orders. Here we are, Mr. President. A large plank structure is surrounded by helicopters and military vehicles. And Trigger Girl 6 sees light streaming from the hole that she shot in the wall. As a matter of fact, at first you might think, and I did think, it was the light from the helicopters and stuff outside, but no, it's actually the hole that she shot at the high, giant hologram head of the white-haired lady. It made mm-hmm. a hole behind her head. And so she peeks through it. And she says, it's beautiful. Outside, a field commander says they're detecting a lot of heat signatures within the building. He says the president should be ushered out of there, evacuated, while they send a small team inside, but the president insists on staying put. 
Now, through the hole in the wall, Trigger Girl 6 finds a lush rainforest inside of some hangar-sized greenhouse. Got birds and everything. I know. It's, like, beautiful in there. Trigger Girl, sex, tr- Trigger Girl 6 says, what is this place? And a voice from off-panel goes, you're home. This is where you were born. And then the military outside breaches the building. They stream inside through a hole blown in the exterior, but then immediately stream back out, faces streak with blood. A bald eagle flies out of the hole made by the military, then lands on the shoulder of the president. Yeah, the bald eagle says, Good boy, they make one move more toward me, and I'll rip out your jugular vein. And he'll do it, too. Now, back at the rainforest, Trigger Girl 6 is communicating with some animals. Yeah, it looks like an anaconda, a panda bear, a grizzly Hmm. bear, a gibbon, a wolf, and a jaguar. Although I want to note that the animal species might not be precise. We're not zoologists. We just no. I, I got the I got the uh, the elephant issue of zoo books, but that was the that free was the one. Only one. I didn't go any, didn't go past that. <laughs> now Alan the bear goes. My name is Alan A, and these are my friends. We are the ones responsible for you being here. Trigger Girl Six says, "You talk." A jaguar replies. We communicate, a gift to use from your biological mother. Alan the bear proceeds to answer Trigger Girl's questions for the most part, that she was created in a lab and the fish swimming around her in the beginning were David and Linda, the scientists that did it. So those voices were actually the fish. Uh, The president's mother, also the mother of these animals, quote unquote, in that she created the devices that allow communication, she passed away quite some time ago. Alan the Bear tells us, Dr. Lara Clarkson created this place for our protection. When she was diagnosed with cancer, she spent every penny she had to build this place and keep it secret from the rest of the world. We kept it up after she had gone. And this is how you pay her back. By trying to kill her son, I don't follow. In his years of power, over 3,000 species have gone extinct. He became corrupt, and his latest push for bigger business has destroyed whatever wetlands we had left. We couldn't sit by and let this happen anymore. It's why you and your sisters were created. Then a white horse strolls up and says the eagle and the lions have gone topside to confront the army. Outside, the bald eagle is still perched on the president's shoulder. What do you want, baby? I want what everyone seems to want and no one is getting. What happened to the boy who would visit us? You were such an engaging child. Well, who controls you? You have no idea how your behavior has shamed your mother's legacy. Now listen up. You and I are going to go into the building and no one is going to follow us. Understood? Now one of the, sol- soldier, the, the, one of the soldiers has a clear shot, but the president points out that killing the nation's symbol and an endangered species at that is probably bad PR move. Right. Uh, so the president walks into the building. The field commander tries to set up some teams to follow him, but a pack of lions appear to deter them from this plan. And the president enters the secret rainforest, and he's addressed by a giant turtle that Alan the Bear hmm. calls the Wise One, but his name is actually Thomas. I, I know this place. I dreamed about it. Uh, Thomas the turtle says, You didn't dream about it, Bobby. You were brought here till you were four years old. You used to take rides on my back as a child. Thomas? See, you do 
remember me? What a pleasant surprise. I am sad that we are in this position, though. I know you got the letters I sent. My mother did it, didn't she? All the family money she sunk into a special project paid off. I can't believe I'm actually talking to you and that eagle and... Do you remember why she did it? She said if we could speak to all you, we would learn from you. And Thomas says they created the Trigger Girls to get the president's attention since he wasn't listening to their pleas. They had a vote to terminate the president against Thomas's wishes. But now they throw themselves on the president's mercy since they all share the same mother, so to speak. Yeah, Trigger Girl 6 even makes her plea and says, Look at me, Mr. President. Look into your mother's eyes. Step up and make a decision that would make her proud. It is not too late. Your family and the planet need your help. And the president sits on a rock and contemplates a waterfall for an hour. After some time, he has made a decision. I have made a decision. Once the world finds out that you can all think and communicate on their level, it all changes everything. There's going to be a ton of pushback. What I'm trying to say is, I will need help. Thomas the Turtle replies, Then I shall go with you and help. We have a lot to share with your species. I'm sure we can find a positive solution for everyone. And with that, the president and a giant talking turtle walk out of the rainforest to try and change the world. Looks like Trig Girl 6 is going to stay with the animals for whatever reason. Well, it is her home. Yeah. Uh, also in this issue, that's the end of Trigger Girl 6, but also in this issue, we have American Muscle Part 4, uh, as well as editorials by Justin Gray, Jimmy Palmiotti, Stephen Bunch, and J.C. Vaughn. Uh, also an interview with Scott Morse and a showcase and profile of Kevin Mellon. Yeah. So that does wrap up the Trigger Girl 6 portion of our uh, mm-hmm. show here. You know, there was, uh, you know... I, a lot of the nuts and bolts were good, I would say. The sure. comic book storytelling was fine. Uh, the whole thing did strike me a little bit like a pitch, but... Uh, I think that's a... Yeah. You know, they, it's it's not a totally, un, you know, terrible quality comic. It was okay. Sure. I, I, I did enjoy uh, aspects of it. And the, the ending with the animals definitely was like, whoa, okay, did not expect... Out of nowhere, yeah. <laughs> did not expect that. That was a new one. But uh, I really got into the, you know, we really got into the format of this magazine, really made me think of the classic comics fanzine. So when we come back, we are going to do a kind of a weird comics history, history of mm-hmm. fanzines, but a, a, a short one. This definitely is a subject... Could go a long show if we wanted to Certainly. treat it that way, but uh, we're going to give you a good overview of fanzines, talk about some fanzines through the years, and some printed fanzine publications that you can purchase and read today. Right now. Yeah. Hey, my name's Tom, and I'm going to show you how to make an eight-fold mini-comic. Uh, it's really easy to do. It's got a cover, first page, second page, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and a back cover, and the great advantage of it is that it requires no staples and it's just one sheet. So find some paper. This is just a standard eight and a half by 11 printer paper and fold it into eighths. Take a pen or whatever you want and you can draw in your story. And you want to do it with the back, then the cover, 
and then your first page, second page, flip it over, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth. If you didn't see that, that's back, cover, one, two, flip, three, four, five, six. And take it to your nearest copier machine and put it in. And another advantage of using this technique is that you only have to print on one side. So you effectively half what the cost would be to print on both sides and have to staple it. So once it's done, you want to grab that, take it back to your table, and you want to fold it up the same way that you did the original copy. So into eights. pretty soon. So now that you have that, you want to fold it over and you want to cut right in the middle, right along that crease between the cover and five. And then you want to stop right where you meet the other crease. So you should end up with a kind of weird uh, mouth looking thing in the middle. Now fold that over and push the two sides together. So you want to push them together just like that and fold the other panels around it. And here it is, the final product. You got your cover, all your pages, your back, um, no staples, just one sheet. Now all you have to do is go give them to your friends. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We have gone through Trigger Girl, uh, parts chapters one through four in the Image Comics magazine, Create Our Own Heroes, that we went through in the first part. And now we want to talk all about... Uh, comic book fanzines and fanzines in general. This is sort of a arcane term these days since print mm -hmm. publications are uh, a lot fewer than they used to be, but they're waning. They are, but they are still around. Uh, and we will talk about some that you still can get today. So, a fanzine. This is a, a word blending the uh, fan and magazine, or zine, obviously. It's a non-professional and non-official publication produced by enthusiasts of a particular cultural phenomenon for the pleasure of others who share their interest. So just to say this outright, uh, you know, an industry magazine could never be a fanzine, right? Yeah. If, it's, if it's a total professional, your publisher's weekly, uh, you know, cooking at home, these are not fanzines. This is, you know, a full-on professional publication. The uh, the origins of the fanzine can be traced at least back to the 19th century literary groups in the United States, which formed amateur press associations, which we will talk about more later, mm -hmm. to publish collections of amateur fiction, poetry, and commentary, such as H.P. Lovecraft's United Amateur. These publications were produced first on small tabletop printing presses, often by students. Early fanzines were hand-drafted or typed on a manual typewriter and printed using primitive reproduction techniques that had very low circulation, and we're going to talk about two of them right now. The Spirit Duplicator, this is also known as a Ditto machine in North America, a Banda machine in the UK, or Roneo in France and Australia. A printing method invented in 1923 by Wilhelm Ritzerfeld. This team, the term Spirit Duplicator refers to the alcohols, which were a major component of the solvents used as inks in these machines. So the way this works is the usual wax color was aniline purple, a mauve color. This was a cheap, moderately durable pigment that provided good contrast, but masters were also manufactured in red, green, blue, black, and the hard-to-find orange, yellow, and brown. All except the black one, they would reproduce stuff in pastel shades, pink, mint, sky, blue, and so on. But the purple was the most 
popular one. Uh, Spirit duplicators had the useful ability to print multiple colors in a single pass, which made them popular with cartoonists. So you didn't have to put it through to do the orange and then again to do the blue and then you could do it all at once. That was all the, at once. That was the thing. Now, the duplicating fluid typically typically consisted of a 50-50 mix of isopropanol and methanol, uh, both of which were inexpensive, readily available in quantity, uh, evaporated quickly, and would not wrinkle the paper. Uh, in 1938, a non-flammable solvent was invented by Johann Bjorksten to allow the possibility of using electrically driven machines without the concern of the flammability of pure methyl or ethyl alcohol. Uh, a composition composed of 10% of the of monofluorotrichloromethane and 90% of a mixture of 50% methyl alcohol, 40% ethyl alcohol, 5% water, and 5% of ethylene glycol, mono ethyl ether ether <laughs> so, you, so you can mix that up yourself at home now that we've yeah we gave you the recipe <laughs> um now this solvent had a flash point of 100 degrees fahrenheit when fully exposed exposed to air yeah and obviously with an electrical system they could crank out more copies faster that was the, the whole thing ditto copies now pose a serious challenge to archivists responsible for historic document preservation because they gradually fade with exposure to ultraviolet light and when exposed to direct sunlight, ditto copies can fade to illegibility in less than a month. The low-quality paper often used would yellow and degrade and crumble into small particles when handled, and one well-made master could print only about 50 copies before the pigment was exhausted and the print became illegible. And Chris and I both remember these, uh, but a lot of you guys too, these are the, these are the ones, the purple sheets you'd get in school and you'd be sniffing them. Right, you gotta, you, gotta, you gotta make sure you sniff both sides to get all the uh, ethyl alcohol you can. Uh, for both of us, when we were in school as kids, they were called rexographs, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. I, that must have yeah. been the proprietary name for the New York City Board of Ed. Like, it must have been. They, they bought rexograph machines from you know Charles Rex, brother-in-law to the <laughs> superintendent. But uh, it changed for you, right? You actually have heard the other use. Yeah, because uh, part of the part of my culture shock when I left New York City and moved to Long Island was a change between calling these uh, duplicates rexos and dittos. Yeah. So that was a. It's like, oh, here's a you know they handed out dittos, and it's like, well, what what the hell's that? But it, it makes sense uh, as soon as you as soon as you see it. Yeah, and the, mach- uh, the machine that actually was the reason it was because the ditto machine was the most popular one. I think it was made in Indiana. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's really the spirit duplicator is the non-commercial name for if everyone wants sure. to. <laughs> <laughs> We're also going to talk about the hectograph. Now, the hectograph, a gelatin duplicator or jellygraph, is a printing process that involves transfer of an image, original image prepared with special inks to a pan of gelatin or a gelatin pad pulled tight on a metal frame. Now, the special aniline dyes for making the master image came in the form of ink or in pens, pencils, carbon paper, or even typewriter ribbon. Now, the master is placed on the gelatin, and spirits applied to transfer the ink from the master to the gelatin. After transfer the image to the inked gelatin surface, copies are made by pressing paper against it. Yeah, so, I mean, it really sounds like you couldn't get a lot of impressions out of this, but it is, right? it's a real cheap printing plate, I guess, in a way. Uh, the gelatin process produced print runs of somewhere between 20 and 80 copies, depending on the skill of the user and the quality of the original. At least eight different colors of hectographic ink were available at one time, but purple was the most popular because of its density and contrast. Because it left few traces, hectographic printing was also used in clandestine circumstances when discretion was necessary. For instance, 
Prisoners of War at Stalag Luft III and Kolditz Castle during World War II used an improvised hectograph to reproduce documents for a planned escape attempt. That's pretty cool. Uh, yeah. While the hectograph process is obsolete for printing on paper, it is the process still used for making temporary tattoos on human skin. Crazy. That's how they do it. <laughs> now, the use of uh, mimeograph machines enabled greater press runs, and the photocopier increased the speed and ease of publishing even more. Uh, now, the mimeograph, uh, the stencil duplicator or mimeograph machine, is a low-cost duplicating machine that works by forcing ink uh, through a stencil onto paper. It is often confused with the spirit duplicator. Yeah. Now, the mimeograph began its life as the papiograph, invented in, in 1874 by Eugenio de Zucato. Zucato, mm -hmm. a young Italian studying law in London. He would write on paper with a special varnish that would burn precise holes through it, creating a stencil. Thomas Edison received the U.S. patent number 180,857 <laughs> for autographic printing on August 8, 1876, which covered the electric pen, which was used for making the stencil and the flatbed duplicating process. In 1880, Edison obtained a further patent, U.S. 224-665, method of preparing autographic stencils for printing, which covered the making of stencils using a file plate, a grooved metal plate on which the stencil was placed with, uh, which perforated the stencil when written on with a blunt metal stylus. The word mimeograph was first used by Albert Blake Dick when he, invent, when he licensed Edison's patents in 1887. In 1891, David Gest... Tetner uh, patented his automatic cyclostyle, a version that retained the flatbed and passed it back and forth under inked rollers. So now where you can really crank paper through it without having to do one at a time. Uh, this invention provided for more automated, faster reproductions and was adjusted and upgraded in many ways during the first half of the 20th century. These limited printing styles would affect how fanzines were written. Readers would correspond in abbreviated words and phrases in order to save precious and costly space and materials. Perhaps, Chris, is this a precursor to elite speak and modern cell phone jargon? Is anyone still with us? No, I don't think so. Oh. So, back to the fanzines. <laughs> now we're going to talk about science fiction fanzines. When Hugo Gernsback published the first science fiction magazine, Amazing Stories, in 1926, he allowed for a large letter column which printed readers' addresses. By 1927, readers, often young adults, would write to each other, bypassing the magazine altogether. Uh, now, science fiction fanzines had their beginnings in serious and constructive correspondence between readers. This is something that they name. It's called Sircon, yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, fans finding themselves writing the same letter to several correspondents sought to save themselves a lot of typing by duplicating those letters. Uh, they began making carbon copies of their correspondence, but this would prove insufficient. So, the first science fiction fanzine, The Comet, was published in 1930 by the Science Correspondence Club in Chicago, edited by Raymond A. Palmer and Walter Dennis. At this time, fanzines were known as letterzines, or fan mags. Traditionally, the first mailed issue of a science fiction fanzine was available on request, and to receive further issues, a reader sends a letter of comment about the fanzine to the editor. And this is because many fanzines just consisted of letters. They were just correspondence between fans and nothing else. Uh, the, the term fanzine was later coined by Russ Chauvenet in the October 1940 edition of his fanzine Detours. Fanzine readers and producers naturally gather at science fiction conventions, but there are also small conventions dedicated to fanzines. 
The first uh, fanzine-only annual convention was Autoclave that was held by a Detroit-based fan group for several years during the 1970s. In 1984, a first con called Corflu, uh, the slang for correction fluid, was held in Berkeley, California. And then a second convention, Ditto, started in Toronto in 1988. Both of these conventions continue to take place each year. Uh, Corflu's location changes year to year. Now, specific Hugo Awards are given for fanzines, fan writing, and fan art. Science fiction fanzines proliferated throughout the 20th century, truly numbering in the thousands, which uh, gives us way too many to list yeah, here. Yeah, especially <laughs> since this is not a science fiction podcast, although I'm starting this to think is also it might be true. Now. <laughs> now, Today, many enjoy the more immediate state of digital e-zines. Yeah. Uh, now, this is actually what our podcast is about, is comics. Uh, hey. the comics fanzines. Uh, comic books were mentioned in discussed as early as late 1930s in the fanzines of science fiction. Famously, the first version of Superman, a bald-headed villain, appeared in the third issue of Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster's 1933 fanzine, Science Fiction. Uh, We've talked about this before. This was actually an illustrated story, though, not a comic strip. Malcolm Willits, a science fiction author, and Jim Bradley, who was uh, a fan of science fiction, we think, started the Comic Collector's News, (laughs) first dedicated comics fanzine published in Portland, Oregon in October 1947. Some science fiction fanzines have been increasing their comic-related content, like David Kyle's Fantasy World in 1936 and Phil Bronson's Scientific Comics in 1940. Now, after a few years, Bradley and Willits decided to cease publication of the Comics Collector's News and start a science fiction zine they co-published in 1950 that they called Destiny. Uh, By 1952, Ted White, who was later an author and music critic, had mimeographed a four-page pamphlet about Superman, and James Tarassi, who was an incredibly prolific science fiction fan and coordinator of the first Worldcon science fiction convention back in 1939, issued the uh, short-lived fantasy comics. We also have the EC Fan Bulletin. In uh, 1953, Bob Stewart, who's a prolific writer, editor, cartoonist, and filmmaker, began publishing the EC Fan Bulletin, which launched EC Fandom of imitative uh, EC fanzines. Yeah. Now, a few months later, Stewart, White, and Larry Stock, who later became a journalist and reviewer, they produced... Potsribi. Potsribi? Is that good? You actually remember Pot- Potsribi, I think it was pronounced. Potsribi. Uh, <laughs> uh, that was uh, planned as a literary journal of critical commentary about EC by Stark. Uh, among the wave of EC fanzines that followed, the best known was Ron Parker's Hoo-ha! Yeah, there's about a dozen of them, and uh, you, you can look them up. There's a book called The Sincerest Form of Parody that delves into this a little bit, uh, but there were plenty. And, and this really, I think, is the pattern for comics fanzines to follow for a while was the way these were done. Uh, it helped that EC Comics also cultivated their fans to the letters page in the same way as uh, the old science fiction uh, magazines. And they had the EC Fan Addict Club in 1953. Really, this was just a couple of trinkets and a funny membership certificate, but the mailing list would be used by AC for, pro- for promotional offers and occasional correspondence, and it just kind of created a unifying you know, fandom. Community, yeah. Yeah, exactly, community. That's that, There's the word I needed. <laughs> uh, in 1960, Richard Lupoff, later an author and historian, and his wife, Pat, launched their science fiction and comics fanzine Zero, X-E-R-O. This would later also be edited by Bob Stewart, who did the EC fanzine. In the second issue, The Spawn of MC Gaines by Ted White, 
This was the first in a series of nostalgic analytical articles about comics by Lupoff, Don Thompson, Bill Blackbeard, who was the writer and editor of the, and the founder-director of the San Francisco Academy of Comic Art, which has a massive collection of comic strips and clippings, Jim Harmon, later author and Golden Age radio historian, and others under the heading All in Color for a Dime. So this might be like the first reflective comics article, right, of the yeah, way things were. Nostalgia is born here. Right, exactly. That might be right where it's <laughs> boom. Right. Anyway, <laughs> we also have the uh, the comic buyer's guide. Uh, Don and Maggie Thompson would publish Harbinger, a mimeographed one sheet, in the autumn of 1960, which announced the upcoming publication of Comic Art, one of the early comics fanzines devoted to all aspects of the medium. The initial issue of Comic Art was released the following spring. Seven issues were published at irregular intervals between 1961 and 1968. Because, uh, you know, that's that's just the way it's going to be. That's how it's got to be, <laughs> folks. Yeah. You get them when they're done. Uh, now, as a publication of comic art wound down, the Thompsons started a fanzine called Newfangles. That was in March 1967. Unlike other comic news fanzines at the time, it was devoted to the doings of comics fandom instead of the news about the comic books and the professionals themselves. So now fandom is becoming its own full Its own genre, yeah. Genre, its own scene, you know, and it definitely is its own scene, has its own stores and everything today. Mm -hmm. uh, Maggie Thompson, she looms large in the world of comic books and comics history. She worked as a freelance ed writer and editor until coming to Krauss Publications as the editor of Movie Collector's World and Comic Buyer's Guide in 1983. With her husband, Don, she wrote a miscellany of articles and comic book stories, including the official price guide to science fiction and fantasy, 1989, House of Collectible Collectibles, five years of Comic Buyer's Guide Annual, 1992-1996, Krauss Publications, a Marvel Comics Checklist and Price Guide, 1961 to Present, that was 1993 Krauss Publications, and Comic Book Superstars, 1993 Krauss Publications. And all this really is some of the, uh, this is printed a lot later, but when they're getting into this early fandom, it's like the first place they're setting prices for these. Yeah, right. You know, you, I mean, really you got to think of it as a Wild West, just like, how many people want this issue of Wonder Woman? You know, oh, five? Yep. Okay, I want eight bucks for it. You know what I mean? Like, it's that, that, <laughs> that small of a thing. Uh, with others, she produced the Comic Buyer's Guide Checklist and Price Guide, now in its 16th edition by Krauss Publications, and the Standard Catalog of Comic Books, now in its 5th edition by Krauss Publications. Now, the two went on to win many awards for their comics journalism and fandom, which includes the Comic Fan Art Award Favorite Fan Writer in 1973 and 1974, an Inkpot Award in 1976, the Jack Kirby Award for Best Comics Publication in 1985, the Diamond Lifetime Fandom Award in 1991, and the Eisner Award for Best Comics-Related Periodical in 1992. <laughs> we'll jump from that to Alter Ego. In 1961, Jerry Bell's fanzine Alter Ego, devoted to costumed heroes, became a focal point for superhero comics fandom. It's sometimes mistakenly cited as the first comics fanzine. Uh, in 1953, Bales wrote to DC, care of Julius Schwartz, to inquire about issues of All-Star Comics. His letter would be forwarded to former Justice Society writer Gardner Fox, and from Fox's reply of July 9, 1953, the two began corresponding regularly. 
Uh, Jerry Bales was finally able to convince Gardner Fox in ni- early 1959 to sell him his personal bound copies of All-Star Comics issues 1 through 24. Wow. Must, wow. Must have really shook up a friendship, but the story gets funnier wow. from there. In October <laughs> 1960, a letter from young comics fan Roy Thomas to Julius Schwartz similarly inquiring about back issues of All-Star Comics led to Schwartz also putting Thomas in contact with All-Star writer Gardner Fox. Fox informed Thomas that, in his words, he had sold his bound volumes of All-Star Comics to a gent named Jerry Bales and put Thomas in touch with him. Bales and Thomas would go on to exchange 100 pages worth of letters in less than five months, starting from the end of November 1960, and forge a friendship in which, in Thomas's words, set in motion a chain of events which led to alter ego, organized comics fandom, the Alley Awards, and maybe a bit more. Including Gardner Fox changing his phone number. Yeah, I think uh, so. <laughs> now, with the debut of the new Justice Society, the Justice League of America, in the pages of The Brave and the Bold, issue number 28 in March 1960, Bales felt his efforts had finally paid off, and his career as an active fan began. He soon bombarded the DC offices with suggestions for new superhero revivals. For instance, in Justice League of America number four, the letters page is filled with missives from Bales under different pen names. <laughs> uh, he did everything he could to fool editor Julia Schwartz, including mailing the letters from all across the country. What a card. That's dedication. Yep. Uh, so, contacts through these magazines were instrumental in creating the culture of modern comics fandom, you know, conventions, collecting, all that stuff. Uh, much of this, like comics fandom itself began as part of the standard science fiction conventions but comic fans have developed their own traditions Uh, comic fanzines often include fan artwork based on existing characters as well as discussion on the history of comics yeah that was just the kind of thing you would find in alter ego Uh, another comic fanzine that later on turned into a uh, rep- publication publication was the comic reader this is also uh, found, started with Jerry Bales who found it and published on the drawing board in October 1961 to showcase the latest comic news on the drawing board was devoted to blurbs and news items pertaining to upcoming events in pro comics released in standalone form as a single page news sheet on the drawing board number four uh, one two three had been applied to the comics appearing in those issues of alter ego debuted on October 7th 1961. Comics historian Bill Shelley reflected, Suddenly, fans had a way to see what was coming up on the newsstands. In some cases, they also found out the names of the writers and artists of certain features, in an era before such credits were routinely given. While there was considerable interest in developments at DC, especially the revival of Hawkman, fans Uh also closely followed the entrance of other companies into the costume hero sweepstakes. Sweepstakes, Archie Comics, Gold Key, Charlton, and Marvel. So I, I really find this interesting. It's like before there were solicits, uh-huh. here's one guy just compiling the publishing plan for the next month or whatever. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, now, in uh, March 1962, issue eight of On the Drawing Board was retitled The Comics Reader. The On the Drawing Board name was retained for the periodical's news section, however. Uh, the generally monthly title became a mainstay of fandom, winning a 1963 Alley Award. A TCR would go through a few hands and editors throughout the 60s, switching to offset printing in 1965 as well. Uh, producing a monthly magazine is hard, as you might imagine, especially <laughs> back before the internet. And so, despite winning a 1969 Alley Award, by early 1970, TCR was no longer being published. 
Now, in early 1971, New York teenager Paul Levitz brought the property and took over the comic reader with issue number 78. He merged it with etc. Uh, it's spelled out. Yep. A, a zine he had co-published with another familiar name, Paul Kupperberg. Mm-hmm. Now, from issues 78 through 89, the merged zine was called etc. and the comic reader. And after issue 90, the zine split up again. Under Levitz's editorship, TCR increased circulation, uh, going monthly after a previous schedule of eight issues a year, and changed format, usually featuring an illustrated cover and typically 16 pages in length. Yeah, and they would really start attracting a lot of artists to do the famous covers. And this whole thing between etc. and the comic reader, splitting up another guy from New Mexico got part of it. There was a, there's a, such a complicated story there, Chris. Yeah, very nebulous. I, I really, we really couldn't even get into it, but. Uh, if you want to hear about it, folks, let us know. We might let expand us know. on we'll that. We'll do it. Now, we want to talk a little bit about fanzine distribution because it's different than uh, distribution of official publications. These usually come in the form of amateur press associations. Now, these APAs have roots dating back to the earliest days of printing. It's a group of like-minded people who send their zines and fanzines or selected material from the same to a central mailer or a guy you might call a distribution manager. That person then compiles it and reprints this material into one collected edition that is then mailed out to people on the mailing list. So it's actually several zines or parts of zines into one omnibus or something, you know, some collected book. Each APA determines its own deadlines, rules for submission, etc. The first to become an organization rather than a loosely held group of professional friends is the National Amateur Press Association, NAPA, founded February 19th, 1876, by Evan Reed Reale and nine other members in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and that is still in existence today. That's amazing. Yeah. (laughs) Now, the second... The second United States APA was the United Amateur Press Association, UAPA, that was founded in 1895 by a group of teenagers that included William H. Greenfield, who was 14, and Charles W. Hines, or Haynes, who was 17. Now, this became a confederation of small amateur publishers, which split into two organizations known interchangeable as UAP and uh, UAAPA. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of letters there. Now, the American Amateur Press Association... AAPA was formed in 1936 by a secession from what was then called the UAPAA. Don't worry, we will not test you on all this. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Wow. Uh, The first science fiction APA was the Fantasy Amateur Press Association, FAPA, founded by Donald A. Wolheim and John B. Michelle in 1937. This is still active today. It's fandom's longest-running organization of any kind, preceding the founding of its the runner-up, the National Fantasy Fan Federation, which I guess would be the NFFF, right? By sure. nearly four years. Uh, FAPA's original constitutional limit was 50 members to accommodate publishers using hectographs, the old hmm. gelatin print uh, they couldn't do anymore. Uh, there were 21 members listed on the roster of the first mailing in August 1937. It took until November 1938 for the mailing to fill the 50-member roster. The membership limit was raised to 65 in 1943 and has remained at that level ever since. Although wow. as of May 2017, there are 19 active particip- participants, including one joint membership. 
Now, the first comics app, it was started by Jerry Bales uh, in 1964. Who else would do it? Yeah, right? <laughs> and that was in the United States. It's named uh, CAPA Alpha or Kappa Alpha, sometimes abbreviated to KA, capital K, little a, mm-hmm. and has a present limit of 40 members. Now, its members have included Mark Ivanier, Carl Gafford, Fred Patton, Richard and Wendy Peeney, Neil Posner, Roy Thomas, Tony Isabella, Bob Ingersoll, Dan Anderson, Dave Kaler, or Caller, Ralph Alfonso, Rick Norwood, Don Markstein, Dwight Decker, Rob Solomon, Rocky Bronstein, Tom Stern, Jim Caucus, uh, Richard Morrissey, Harry Burgess, Bro- Burgess. that's the one, uh, Jim, <laughs> him too, uh, Jim Chadwick, Wayne DeWald, Melanie Crawford, Gary Brown, Alan Hutchinson, Jeffrey H. Wasserman, and Don and Maggie Thompson. Look at this, all the big heroes, all the greats. Mm-hmm. Uh, also want to do a little brief thing on mini-comics co-ops. Mm-hmm. These are essentially APAs, but they're for mini-comics, and we're including them here because some mini-comics are fanzines, basically for our purposes, as far as containing sure. interviews, interva- information, little brief comics. Uh, the most well-known of these co-ops is the United Fanzine Organization, or UFO, a cooperative of mini-comic creators that has existed since about 1968 when it was called Blue Plaque Publ- Publications, BPP. Carl Gafford, at that point the publisher of a comics fanzine called Minotaur, created the BPP. When the UFO again disbanded during the early 1980s, it was revived again, yet again, by Jim Main. The group had, has continued ever since, and many of the finest publishers in the comic small press have been and continue to be members. Since the early 1970s, some fanzines have also enjoyed the same distribution as comic books, uh, namely to comic shops, and today through Diamond only. Certainly. And uh, before we move on to the next one here, there are also apps that were dedicated to fan fiction that uh, a lot of, uh, that not a lot of, but several... Creators that we know today started in. Started uh, on those? Oh, sure. Like yeah. uh, Brian K. Vaughn was in an APA. Um, what's your face? Devin Grayson, Jay Farber. Uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the young writers of the turn of the century were uh, were coming from the APAs. Just, and, uh, it really sounds like the the you know publication or whatever your thing is the underground of that, right? It's like this yeah. like you got to be a hardcore fan to be. You're in the network. In the yeah. APA, you know. Mm-hmm. Now uh, we also we're gonna go on to the amazing world of DC Comics. Now this was DC Comics itself produced fan magazine of the mid-1970s. DC production manager Sal Harrison uh, conceived the idea of a DC prozine and assigned Bob Rizakis to oversee its development. It would run 17 issues from cover dates July-August 1974 through April 1978. Uh, The Amazing World of DC Comics was exclusively available through mail order. It consisted primarily of text articles with occasional strips and comics features. Now, the bulk of the issues were edited by Alan Asherman and later by Paul Levitz and then Carrie Burkett. Uh, individual issues were, in, were edited by Carl Gafford, Bob Rizakis, and Neil Posner. Cost for a single issue subscription was 150 USD. Which was That's 1.50. Not a, not a small uh, amount of money in the, in the early days, yeah, especially the comic sure. was 50 cents. 40, right? 40, 40 cents, cents yeah. something like that. Now, uh, the premiere issue of this uh, contained the following features. We have. The Celebrated Mr. K, Joe Cubitt, by Guy H. Lillian III. It's an interview with Cubitt conducted in his Dover, New Jersey home. Uh, There's also a a section called Direct Currents, which showed uh, July and August coming attractions. 
We also have Wonder Woman TV Super Agent, written by Carl Gafford. This was an article on the ABC Tuesday Movie of the Week that featured Kathy Lee Crosby as Wonder Woman. Yeah, probably the pilot or testing yeah. the waters for the show that would come. And you can find that. You can find that on YouTube. That 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 uh, pilot, right? The movie, yeah. yeah. The pilot. Uh, the Adventures of Superman by Alan Asherman. This was an overview of the television series and the two George Reeves movies it spawned. Meet the Woodchucks. This was short bios of the Amazing World staff, who Rosak is called the Woodchucks. The Shadow Center Spread by Michael Kaluta, an unused cover from The Shadow. Remembering by Alan Asherman, Saul Harrison discussing the beginnings of DC Comics. That's really cool. Yeah. Uh, now we have In Memoriam, this Bill Finger, by, written by E. Nelson Bridwell, and that's a short biography of Finger written on a tombstone with a Dick Giordano il- illustration of Batman at the gravesite. Uh, we have Sergio Takes a Look at DC by Sergio Aragonis, uh, one panel gags about the DC staff. Uh, the letter column, All Stars of Tomorrow, by Bob Rizakis. Uh, Rizakis evaluates letter hacks with the potential, like him, to become comics professionals. We have one called Yesteryear by E. Nelson Bridwell, which is a decade-by-decade retrospective, which is another one I'd I'd love to see. I would love to see these, yeah. Yeah. The secret history of DC Comics. Sure. Uh, Murder Incorporated, or Murder Inc., by Jack Kirby and Mike Royer. This is an unpublished 10-page story from the also unpublished In the Days of the Mob, Mm -hmm. number two. How a comic book is created by Paul Levitz. This is the first and ongoing in-depth feature on creating a story or comic from start to finish. It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman in Technicolor by Steve Mitchell. This is a retrospective and index of the Max Fleischer Superman cartoons. Amazing. Um, Now, the Amazing World of DC Comics sponsored a character design contest that resulted in three winners. Someone created Nightwing. Whoa! Uh, Someone someone get Marv Wolfman on the horn already? (laughs) Not that one. This one has an alter ego of Lara Londo. Uh, It was created by longtime Legion of Superheroes fan Robert Harris. Uh, The character's name was later changed to Nightwind, and her alter ego was renamed Berta Harris after her creator. Uh, This was announced in Amazing World number 12. Also, the Crystal Kid alter ego Rondo Kane, created by Robert Cohen of Calgary, Alberta, Canada. The character's alter ego is renamed Bob Cohen in, in honor of his creator, and he was introduced in Amazing World number 14. The Lamprey, alter ego Angela Mages, created by Scott Taylor of Portland, Texas. Lamprey's alter ego was changed to Taylor Scott in honor of her creator, and that was introduced in Amazing World number 14. Now, all three students appeared in DC continuity as Legion Academy students. This was in Legion of Superheroes, Volume 2, issue number 272, from February 1981. So that's cool. Now, over across the street, we have Foom, F-O-O-M. Marvel Mania International was Marvel Comics authorized but independently operated fan club from 1969 to 1971, which absorbed the Merry Marvel Marching Society begun in 1964. It included a six-issue fan magazine, Marvel Mania Magazine. Mm-hmm. Now, Foom was Marvel Comics' self-produced fan magazine of the mid-1970s, following the canceled Marvel Mania and preceding Marvel Age. I just want to show the difference between being just a house organ and being fan-produced. You know, this was put together largely by Jim Starenko. Uh The other one was Bob Rosakis and Paul Levitz. Yes, you know, employees of the companies, but died-in-the-wool fans 
that wanted to part talk, of the scene. They yeah. wanted to talk a lot more about than just you know how great these comics were and what was coming up. They wanted to talk about we see they went into all this stuff about you know the history of the company and and uh, Max Fleischer cartoons and stuff. Anyway, we hope to make that point as we keep talking about these things. Uh, Foom F O M stands for Friends of All Marvel. This ran 22 quarterly issues, February 1973 to fall 1978, and it was initially designed and edited by Jim Starenko. Now, Starenko, in his first issue introduction, wrote that he had dropped in at the Marvel bullpen to rap with then-publisher Stan Lee about the current comic scene, and then Lee told him about plans to start the in-house fan club. Writing, what he nostalgically re- writing that he nostalgically recalled the days of radio, with all the clubs and super premiums that were perpetually offered over the air, Jim Starenko volunteered my services as a designer, writer, and comic historian. Uh, Ken Brusenak uh, served as associate editor, with Marvel editor-in-chief Roy Thomas as a consulting editor, and Ed Noonchester, Joel Thingval, and Gary Brown as staff. A four-issue subscription to this was $3. An additional dollar brought club membership, ID card, six decals, and a poster. The membership kit was also available separately for US 250, so why wouldn't you pony up that 50 cents for the four mm-hmm. issues? The premiere contained a forward by Stan Lee, an introduction by Starenko announcing a contest to design a superhero or supervillain, short biographies of Lee Thomas, artist John Buscema and Joe Sinnott, and writer Jerry Conway, and three puzzles including a crossword. Now, a four-page feature on the superhero team, the Fantastic Four, accompanied by a two-page title and credits checklist. A two-page board game called Moving Target. A five-page far-out fanfare and information section uh, previewing upcoming Marvel comics. There was a pinup reprinting superheroes from the Jack Kirby-drawn cover of Fantastic Four number 73, April 1968 cover. A page of sketches of super, super spy Nick Fury, on which fans were encouraged to draw disguises. A one-page recommended reading page that featured the Starenko history of comics and Starenko's comic scene for two-thirds of the page. <laughs> now, a one-page humor strip called Fantastic Fia, written by Roy Thomas and Len Brown, with uh, art by Gil Kane and Wally Wood, uh, and two pages of in-house ads for T-shirts and the record album, The Amazing Spider-Man, are Rocko Mike. <laughs> what? <laughs> I, think it's a, I think it's a rock comic. A rock comic. Yeah, it's a, the, the comic. They can't tell yeah. whether it's a comic or it's rocket, and they don't know which one it is. Ay, ay, ay. Okay, now, <laughs> issue two. <laughs> that hits um, summer 1973. That This presented the first of two double-page spreads of fan art submitted for the character design contest that was announced in issue one. Included were characters Absorbo Man by future comics artist Steve Rude, Novaton by future Marvel art director, writer, and editor Mariano Nicieza, and Borgo by Casimiris G. Prapolinus. Okay. Uh, now, issue three came the next season, fall 1973, and that included Heroes by future Marvel Age editor Steve Saffel. Uh, the winner, which was announced that issue, was Michael A. Barrario of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, for the supervillain Humus Sapiens. The character eventually appeared 28 years later in Thunderbolt number 55, that was September 2001 issue, as the mutant Humus Sapien. Humus Sapien. Notable, because we're not sure when we'll ever discuss this again, Humus Sapien wasn't the only creative character, character to appear in the pages of Thunderbolts. Wizard Magazine and Marvel co-sponsored a Create a Supervillain contest in 1997-98, which resulted in the creation of the character Charcoal, created by Wallace and Croja Frost. 
Unfortunately, Wizard left the ownership and legal specifics rather nebulous, and so the character was killed off shortly after making his first appearance in Thunderbolt number 19. That was in 1998. Writer Fabian Nicieza had planned to bring him back down the line, but Marvel advised against it due to rights issues. We also have Marvel Age, the title of a promotional comic book-sized magazine from Marvel that was published between 1983 all the way to 1994. Uh, It's basically a comic-length edition of Bullpen Bulletin's page. Uh, Marvel Age contained previews of upcoming Marvel comics as well as interviews with comics professionals and other features, including occasional original comic strips. Not really a fanzine in the traditional sense, uh, but it it is, you know, we're, we're including it here for posterity. Uh, Marvel Age would publish 140 issues, four annuals, two previews, and two specials during its 11-year-long run. Uh, The magazine's 25 to 35 cent cover price was way cheaper than regular Marvel and any other comics uh, (laughs) for that era as well. For sure, yeah. It was a nice little intro to to stuff. People actually might pick it up and check it out, you know. They might. Uh, I just want to mention uh, briefly that there was a promotional issue of Foom. On the stands recently when Marvel did their legacy initiative thing that was really just interviews with the creators of the new comics and a bunch of promotional stuff did not really bear resemblance to a fanzine or foom at all, but that exists in the world and I just want to mention it. So, Charlton Bullseye. This was a fanzine published from 1975 to 1976 by the CPL Gang, highlighting Charlton Comics. The CPL Gang was a group of comic books enthusiasts who published a number of fanzines into the mid-1970s. Founded by Roger Stern and Bob Layton, the CPL Gang eventually included Roger Slifer, uh, Duffy Voland, Tony Isabella, Don Mates, Michael Usland, Stephen Grant, and John Byrne. Name comes from a fanzine they produced called Contemporary Contemporary Pictorial Literature (CPL). It was a large format publication with color covers on cardstock and black and white interiors. Seeing the fan reaction to Amazing World of DC Comics and Foom, Charlton Comics wanted their own house fanzine to establish a fan presence. Now, the CPL gang first got permission to publish a one-shot that was called the Charlton Portfolio in 1974, which included the unpublished sixth issue of Blue Beetle, Volume 5. Now, the positive response to, to the Charlton Portfolio led to the CPL gang getting approval to publish a Charlton-focused fanzine, which we know is the Charlton Bullseye, and that had five issues. Now, these issues contained, in issue one, the first half of an unpublished Captain Adam story that was going to appear in in issue number 90, uh, and that was finished by John Byrne. In issue two, the second half of another unpublished Captain Adam story. In issue three, a Kung Fu issue, unpublished uh, Wrong Country by Santo Kim, uh, was published. uh, That was intended for the character Yang. In uh, number four, that was April 1976, a new E-Man story, and first half of an unpublished final Doomsday Plus One story. And in issue number five, that was September of 1976, there was a new The Question story by Alex Toth, and second half of an unpublished final Doomsday Plus One story that began in the issue before. So those would be what we would call the official comics fanzines in a way. Mm-hmm. You see the line, sure. the line gets very blurred back and forth, but I feel like if they've had to scrape together unpublished material, get interviews, and uh, 
random photos. That's it's, that's treading into fanzine territory. Yeah, and the uh, more the fans are actually becoming part of the industry, the line blurs even more. Absolutely, yeah. That, that's like what I'm saying. You know, like yeah. Paul Levitz, uh, and Jim Steranko. These are as big of fans as you'll ever find for comics. Mm-hmm. But you can't deny that Jim Steranko also prolific pros. Prolific yes, pros. <laughs> Paul Levitz was the president of DC for goodness <laughs> sake. So. Uh, yeah, the you're exactly right. That's also where the line gets really blurred between fan and pro work. Uh, but anyway, we do the best we can. Now, uh, today, uh, comics fanzines are different. The 80s and 90s saw the proliferation of several professional industry publications, such as the Comics Journal, Wizard, and the Overstreet Price Guidance, things like that. There are also some independent comic showcases like R. Crumb's Weirdo and Art Spiegelman's Raw, for example. Uh, Today, the position of comics fanzine has largely been filled by blogs and websites online. Some of which we actually contribute to. That's right. We'll talk about them later. Uh, (laughs) But there are two physical publications we, Chris and I, specifically wanted to highlight, uh, made by some very good people. These are actual fanzines that you can hold in your hand and turn pages and read. Uh, First one, Justin Francoeur of the DC in the 80s.com puts out Baxter Stock, a fanzine dedicated to, you guessed it, DC Comics in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one issue, I, I believe, to date, containing an interview with Steve Lytle about his short run on Doom Patrol, an interview with Rick Veach on the lost issue of Swamp Thing, an interview with Michael Fife? 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 Yeah, Fife. Fife. Thank you. Uh, lots of other features, too. It, it is a lot of stuff. It's, it's not a lot of pages, but those pages are jam-packed. Uh, it includes the names of a pair of notable podcasters in the special thanks section, but we're not going to say who. Uh, and you don't even have to buy it. You can download it, print it out, and assemble it yourself from the website. Link in the show notes. You can also buy it. And I actually got a copy at my uh, comic shop, so that was cool. Excellent. We also have uh, John Boylan of RootsOfTheSwampThing.com puts out a Swamp Thing-based fanzine called The Holland Files. Uh, Only one issue to date, but the second one is in production and available for you to pre-order. The first issue contains interviews with Bernie Wrightson, Nancy Collins, and others. Some great articles about Swamp Thing, including one about the Swamp Thing toys from the 90s, uh, and some fan art and fiction for an 80-page behemoth. Of a scene. The thing is massive. I, I got Huge. it. Huge. I got it on the Kickstarter on that because you know I am a massive Swamp Thing fan, and mm-hmm. it is just packed with stuff, folks. If you like Swamp Thing, you are missing out not to have it. Uh, we'd also be very remiss not to mention Tomorrow's publication, that is T W O Morrow's. They put out Modern Incarnation of Alter Ego, a magazine called Comic Book Artist, Back Issue Magazine, and a ton of biographies and comics history books that are absolutely indispensable to anyone in interested in the subject certainly indispensable to folks like us it's basically our bread and butter right our meat yes. our meat and cheese that what they call it something <laughs> like that our uh, flan and pudding flan uh, oh we're gonna put links to all that in the uh show notes and i really i really recommend you at least poke around see what uh tomorrow's and these other guys have to offer because it's it's really the underground of comics info right sure. That's, it's the it's the uh secret communique but uh, I think if you poke around on the Tomorrow's website, you might find a few, uh, at least one issue of each magazine for free to I, download d- digitally. So, I believe I mean, they're, they, they're yeah, great. They really are. Yeah, they do things digitally and hard copy. And uh, mm-hmm. 
really worth really worth checking out. But I'm sure, Chris, that we have forgotten uh, everyone's favorite zines and uh, you know <laughs> didn't name you know the most important zine of whatever era. So if you know what those zines were, or if you want to talk about Jimmy Palmiotti, Justin Gray, Phil Noto, Trigger Girl Six, or anything else that strikes your fancy. You can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash history. We're on Twitter at CosmicTmill, and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. We have weekly writings at weirdsciencedccomics.com. And Chris has daily writings at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, where you review a DC comic every single day of the week. Yep. And you've really been cranking out some... Uh, Lovely ones. Uh, been like a flash week. Couple of, couple, couple of, of flashes and a couple of Legion books, which uh, have me right. out of my element. <laughs> yeah, I know that really takes you out of your your comfort zone. I read the I read the Legion one. I read the two Flash ones. I was having a blast. Uh, I wasn't sure if I like the snarky Twitter commentary more than the uh, as much as the review. But you got to have them both. You got to have both things, folks. So sure. yeah, uh, check it out every day. Chris is on It really is a spectacular resource for fans of comics of any kind. And uh, we still, of course, have that blog slash image depository thing that we made a few months ago and uh, haven't done a whole lot with. <laughs> and that's it, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com. Still featuring all those appearances of that enigmatic monitor. That's right. uh, we'll eventually do some more stuff, maybe. Um, before we jam, we want to definitely thank uh, Jeffrey Brown for the suggestion. This is uh, definitely one of those books that I would not have read otherwise. So Absolutely. I. I Especially being as it's tucked in this other magazine, you know what I mean? Sure, I would have never known there was original uh, original stories in there. It, yeah. It's this was uh, this was definitely an eye opener, and I, I definitely appreciate the opportunity to uh, check it out. Yeah, that was something I mentioned. I do remember seeing this on the stands in in the comic shop back in whatever this was, 2012. Did they say a few years ago? Yeah. Uh, and just at a glance, if you look at the covers, they look like industry magazines, and I remember sure. thinking. Uh, not too hard about it, but thinking, uh, you know, I would, I would rather buy a comic book. Thank you very much. You know, it's like absolutely glossed over. But anyway, I was really glad. We are real glad to check it out. Always love to check something out. It's uh, new, and I do. I'm a big fan of uh, Palmiotti and Gray's work. I think they are talented writers, and Phil Noto too. Absolutely. But absolutely. Uh, I think that's all we got for him this week. Chris, got anything else for him? I think we're good. Well, folks, until next time, I want you to keep it on the treadmill hectographically. Take this pink ribbon off my 